Last week we began this series called Letting Go. And as we are entering to this Easter season, what does it mean to let go of the things that keep us from following Jesus? What does it mean to let go from the things that hinder our walk with him? Last week we looked at his temptation and we learned that we are able to let go and not fall into temptation. And it's by trusting him, staying in the scripture, knowing his truth, knowing that we can we understand rather that we are going to face temptations, but we don't have to give into temptations. This morning, as we're continuing this journey through letting go, this morning I wanted to start with an illustration that kind of helps us see how incredible God's love truly is. And so this morning I've got a bottle with a carbonated soda in it. And there's a couple of different things we can do with this, but we know that we should never do this with one of these kind of bottles. This is never a good thing. Because as I'm shaking it, there's pressure building up in this bottle. And it's continuing, continuing to build up. And we know that the more we shake it, the more pressure builds up. Then there comes this moment when I go to take the top Vicky flinched, so I'm coming over here. Yeah, see, now you know why they're all sitting in the back. They didn't realize what this morning was coming. No. If I untwist this, I'm going to get it everywhere, and I'm going to make a mess. But there's an illustration to the craziness because this bottle shaken up, I know the minute that I open the cap, I'm going to release all that pressure, and it's just going to go everywhere. I can't contain what's in the bottle anymore because the pressure has to let go. And what I want to remind you this morning, this bottle is a picture of God's love for us. We sang a minute ago about the fact that God, his, his love, his, he's, in, he's, un, in a, he's unimaginable. We can't, we can't put him in a place. He's all-powerful. His love for us is such that it overflows, that it wants to be released. He wants to burst forth in his love for us. His love for us is like the pressure in this bottle. It has to be released. It has to spring forward. For all of eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have worked as one. And they've worked as one. They've been in one in unity, one in community. And the church fathers called this love that we see in the Trinity, perichoresis, which is a description of this eternal dance of love that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have for each other. They know this tremendous joy. They know love already. So God had this desire. God wanted to show his love, so he created the universe. He creates the universe to show us his love because his love is so great. His love is so grand that he wanted to share it with you and with me and with his creation. So his love is bursting forth in creation. It's bursting forth in my life, in your life, as we follow him. And this is the picture I want you to have from this bottle. The next time you open a bottle that's been shaken up, that you didn't shake on your own, I want it to be a picture of how much God loves you, how much God wants to love you. That God doesn't want to be contained. 
He wants to share his love with you. He wants to share his love with me. That's his purpose for sending his son to come to this earth, to die for our sins, to show that love that he has for us. And so the picture of this bottle and the pressure in this bottle is a reminder that his love for you cannot be contained. God's love for you, it cannot be contained. I cannot put God's love in a box and put it to the side. I can't put his love in a box and just say, you stay there, God, and I'll call you when I need you. No, his love is so much. He wants to burst forth. He wants to walk with us. He wants to have a relationship with us. And this morning, we're going to see what this relationship looks like. This morning, we're going to see a very familiar passage of Scripture. And it's a conversation between the Savior and a man who is very educated, a man who knows the law, a man by the name of Nicodemus. So this morning, I want you to take your copy of God's Word, and I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to John chapter 3, and let's see this morning what it means to be born anew. What does it mean to be born anew? Because that's what we see in John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, we read these words. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, and you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I had told you earthly things and you did not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a teacher of the law, and he chooses to come to Jesus by night. There are probably a hundred different explanations why he chose to do this. But it's a choice he made. Nicodemus makes the choice to come to Jesus at night. One possibility was he's afraid of what his other Pharisees may say about him. He might be afraid of what his family, his friends, 
may say about him. But here's the reality, and here's a fact. Nicodemus wanted to see Jesus. He had a desire to see Jesus and who this Jesus and who he was. Now, here's what we don't know. We don't know if Nicodemus is coming to Jesus out of sincere faith or he just has questions. He's curious. We don't know the reasoning, but the fact that we can establish is that Nicodemus chose to seek out Jesus and have a conversation with him. And that's what we see in this passage. And here's what I love about Jesus is he doesn't look at this Pharisee and stick his nose up at him. He never says, why are you bothering me? Why are you here? He simply welcomes him, I believe, because the love Jesus had for Nicodemus couldn't be contained. It was waiting to, be, to burst forth so Nicodemus could experience what it means to have a relationship with God and not just know God here. So we see in this conversation three different things take place. And it's a conversation between two men, one who is learned and one who is the word. And the first thing we see in here is that Jesus is going to remind him and show him that in Christ, we are born anew. In Christ, we are born anew. Again, looking at verses two through five, we see the conversation start in verse two when, when Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But then Jesus makes this statement in, in, in verse three. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, one is born again, you cannot, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That word again, I want to hold on to it because the word again in the Greek can also mean anew. And we're going to explain that in just a second. Because the word here, the word here translated again in the Greek is pronounced anathen, anathen, anathen. And it means again, anew are from above. That's the Greek word for again we see in this verse. And so Jesus makes a statement to Nicodemus, and don't lose this, don't pass this. And I remind you something I always remind you when you're reading this passage, any passage of scripture, you need to read it like you've never seen it before. Because there are too many times because we've read a familiar passage of scripture 10, 20, 100 times, we miss little things. Jesus simply tells Nicodemus, you must be born anew. You must be born again. Now imagine you're Nicodemus and you hear that statement. You must be born again if you're to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Because immediately Nicodemus, who is an educated man, who is a learned man, immediately a question comes to his mind. Look with me in verse 4. There's a question he raises. And it's a legitimate question because here's the reality. Nicodemus has never heard the phrase born again. He's never heard that before. This is the first time he's ever heard this phrase. And he's thinking in his mind, how's this going to work? 
Because that's the legitimacy of the question that Nicodemus asked in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's wrestling with this reality of what does it mean to be born again? Anathan, what does that mean? What does it mean to be born anew? How does that work? And he is wrestling with this. And immediately, and I love how Jesus does things. Jesus makes a statement. There's a question. And immediately, we know this with Jesus. He never answers the question right off the bat. What does he always do? He asks another question. He asks a second question. He makes a second statement. He says in verse 5, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what Jesus is trying to explain to Nicodemus, this Anathan, this being born anew, being born again, it's a rebirth from within by the Holy Spirit. Because notice what he says in the Scripture. He says you must be born of water and the Spirit. The water and spirit is a reference to baptism. And that's what Jesus is pointing to him. And historically, this is what the church has always ascribed to this meaning, being born of water and the spirit. But something that we have realized in the last 200 years plus, and even more so, is that in order to be saved, I have to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I don't have to be baptized to be saved baptism is following the example of Jesus Christ. But in this time, he's saying born of water and the spirit because there was a different thinking. There was a different mindset back in Jesus' day when it came to what salvation looked like. So being born of the water spirit, what does baptism mean? Baptism means that I have acknowledged that I'm a sinner and I've repented of my sins and I enter into the waters of baptism and I die to my trespasses and sins and rise in newness of Christ. That is the picture being painted in these verses and what it truly means to be born anew, to be born again, that you and I are crucified and resurrected with Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's a reminder that as a child of God, to be born anew, it means I take my cross and pick it up daily because I'm a child of His. What Nicodemus hasn't understood yet, but he's going to, is what you and I just sang a little while ago. Who the Son sets free is free what? Indeed, why? Because I'm a child of God. Nicodemus doesn't understand that yet, but he's going to. He's now learning this. He's learning this idea, this concept of being born anew, being born again, and what that truly looks like in his life. It's, it's that picture we talked about, the perichoresis, the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this love that is wanting to burst forth. When you and I are baptized, we are immersed into a walking relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And because of that relationship, you and I have the opportunity. Again, look at the end of verse 5. Look at the end of verse 5. Because you and I, when you and I say that I am a child of God, I've accepted that free gift of salvation. I understand what it means to be born anew. You and I have an opportunity to enter into the kingdom of God as his children. Nicodemus doesn't understand that yet. That's why Nicodemus is wrestling with all this. 
That's why he's asking these questions. Because we see Jesus explain what baptism is. He explains this in those next verses, verses 6 through 8. But then we get to verse 9. Again, Nicodemus is asking questions. Nicodemus doesn't walk, and I love this about this passage of Scripture. At no point does Nicodemus walk in and look at Jesus and say, Do you know who I am? I'm a Pharisee. I know the law backwards, forwards, left, and right. And you're going to tell me how it works? We don't see that. What we see in Nicodemus is a humility. He is humbling himself before the person he has acknowledged as rabbi, as the teacher. What Nicodemus doesn't see is he doesn't see the Son of God yet. He sees the teacher. And so the teacher is showing him these things and explaining them to him. So he's just learned you must be born anew. But look at verse 9. Jesus has explained about being born of the water, being born of the Spirit, being born of all this. But then we get to verse 9, and look what Nicodemus says. Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? How can we be born again? He's not catching it. He's not understanding it. Because he doesn't understand what it means to have the Holy Spirit in his life. Doesn't, doesn't understand what it means to walk in a relationship with him. And what he's wrestling with, what I believe he's wrestling with, is this thought. If God loves me this much, God loves me enough that I need to be born of the water and the Spirit to walk right with him. And Nicodemus, I, I believe he's thinking about the world around him, the things he's dealing with. I think the reason he asked the question in verse 9 is because of this, and it's the second point in your outline this morning. I think he's wrestling with how, does, how is it there's a God who loves this God-hating world? How is there a God who loves this God-hating world? Because we see some things taking place later in this passage of Scripture. But again, look at the questions he's raising. How can it be that we are born anew? And it's not doctrinally. He's not wrestling with doctrine. He's wrestling with the reality. How can we do this? And I think the question also being asked by Nicodemus is this. How can I experience this renewal in my life practically today? God, Jesus, how does this work now? Not down the road, not days, weeks. How does this work now? How does this work practically? Did I have this relation with you that I am born anew? Notice what Jesus says in verses 14 and 15. And he's talking about the world as a whole. But he uses an illustration from the Old Testament. He says in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is quoting from the book of Numbers. And he's quoting a time when the children were in the wilderness wandering and the children were rebelling against God. Take your Bibles for a moment. We're going to come back to John 3. But turn over to Numbers chapter 21. I want you to see what's taking place here. I want you to see what's happening The children of Israel are wandering in the wilderness. 
and they're complaining, which we see that a lot, but they're complaining. Over in Numbers chapter 21, verse 5, let's start in verse 5 because we need to understand what's taking place here. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and there's no water and our souls loathe this worthless bread. May I remind you what's taking place for the children of Israel. They don't have to walk down to the Dollar General to get food. They don't have to get on an animal and go 17 miles to get to the closest Walmart. They simply walk outside their tent and there's manna that God is providing. They don't have to leave their tent. They simply walk, look there, there's the delivery. Pick it up and take it back in. But now the children of Israel have the gall to get mad at God, get mad at Moses, which was a normal thing. But now we're going to say, oh, by the way, we don't like the bread. We serve a God who loves, a God who is patient, and a God who will do things to get our attention when we don't follow him. And that's what he does at this moment. They're complaining about all these things. So God says, well, let me help you out here. Verse 6, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And many of the people in Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that, we, that he take away the serpent from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Verses 8 and 9 is what I want you to pay attention to. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. So it was, if, the, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So Moses makes a bronze serpent, puts it on a pole. And look at the simplicity of this. They've already acknowledged they're sinners. They've already said, we have sinned against God. We have sinned against you. Save us. So Moses prays to God, and God gives him what, he, what they need, a serpent on a pole. And all they had to do, look at, look at this. Don't lose this. Look at the simplicity of this. And look at the picture it sets then, but the picture that Jesus has just talked about back in John chapter 3. When we get to chapter 21 of Numbers, verse 9, Moses made the serpent, he put it on a pole, so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. He didn't have to touch it, didn't have to speak to it. He simply had to acknowledge it was there and look at it. Now, back over in John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, just like the children of Israel in the wilderness had to look to that bronze serpent, the Son of Man must be lifted up and will draw all to him. Later over in John's gospel, John chapter 12, verse 32, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He says that over in John chapter 12. I will draw people all to myself. The word I want you to pay attention to is the word draw. The word draw in the Greek is helkiso. 
Helkiso, which means literally to drag or to pull. The word literally means to drag or pull. So what Jesus is telling us back in John's gospel, go back to John chapter 3. He is reminding Nicodemus that when the man is lifted up, when the Son of Man is lifted up in verse 14, verse 15, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the promise that Jesus is telling Nicodemus that's available to everyone in this world. But Jesus doesn't stop there because he makes the statement in verse 15 that whoever, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Then we get verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Let's go back to my bottle. It can't be contained. In this bottle, it's contained until I turn this lid. Man, Vicky is panicking like nobody's business over here. If I open this, it's going to get everywhere. Right now, it's going to get on this side only. But think about God's love for you and for me. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus is that God's love for you cannot be contained. That yes, you live in a world that's going to despise me and they're going to despise you if you follow me. But look at what, look at what God is going to do here. He says that whoever believed, you go back to Numbers chapter 21, whoever believed and when they saw the serpent and believed that the serpent would heal them by looking at him, they, were, they lived. That's what scripture says. If they were bitten, they simply looked at the bronze serpent and they lived. Now Jesus takes that and says, whoever believes that God has sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in it should not perish but have eternal life. It's the same principle. You simply believe by faith what God has done in sending his son. Why? Because God's love cannot be contained. Because if love, God's love could be contained, is there a need for a savior? If God's love is contained, why is he worried about us? If God's love is contained, why would he need creation to come back and worship him? So this learned man who knows everything here because he's read the law is trying to grasp what this means when Jesus says to be born again, but how do you love a world who's going to hate you? By making salvation available for whosoever. The gospel is for everyone, not for a select few. The gospel is for everyone. So when we think about God loves this world so much, and here's the thing that blows our minds. Here's the thing that blows our minds, and I think it blows Nicodemus's mind as he's hearing all this come from Jesus. Did we have a God who loves us even when we hate him back? We have a God who loves us even when we hate him back. God loves this world, yet we live in a world who does not love God. But again, John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, that whosoever would believe 
in him. Jesus, listen to this thought. Jesus didn't come and die because God saw us as the enemy. Jesus came and died because we saw him as our enemy. We saw the end as an enemy. Not God didn't see us as an enemy. If God sees us as an enemy, there is no salvation. There is no Savior. We see him as an enemy. God, I like my life the way it is. I like doing things the way I want to do them. I don't want you interfering. Yet he sends his son to this world. Why? Because God has never considered us his enemy. Well, how do I know that? Go back to Numbers. Go back to Numbers. The children of God complained against God. They complained against Moses. And oh, by the way, they didn't like the bread. God could have said, fine. Good luck. But God chooses out of love to give them a way back to him. A way to acknowledge him as God. Why? Because God loves us that much. God has never seen us as his enemy. God has never hated his creation. Why? Because at his core, he is a God who is self-giving in his love. And, it, and everything he does flows from that core because he loves you and me so much. The issue is not with God. The issue is with me and with you because of our sin nature, because of who we are. Remember last week, we talked about being rewired in Christ and what that means to walk with him and allow, us, allow him to rewire us when we deal with temptation. But I remind you that we all wrestle with temptation because we are human and we are born into a world full of sin. But I remind you of God's love for us. Take your Bibles, throw over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Our nature, as you're turning to Colossians chapter 1, our nature is different from God's nature in the beginning because we're born into sin. And we don't see God for who he truly is. But part of being born anew, being born again, is changing our thinking. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Paul says this, he says, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through the death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Part of being born again is looking at the world with new eyes and a new heart. And the issue was before that, our minds were allowing us to be corrupt. Our minds were allowing us to look at God as our enemy. Yet God loves this God-hating world enough that he sends his son to die for everyone's sin. How? By Jesus being lifted up. Being lifted up on that cross for my sins and for your sins. And he will pull all people towards him so in a way 
in a way, we partner with God in this relationship, in this mission to tell the world about Jesus to a point that if you and I, if we are Christ-like, we will consider no person our enemy. If I'm walking with God, I have no enemies. Does that mean I get along with everyone? No, but I have no enemies. I have no enemies because of what God has done for me and what God continues to do in my life. Why? Because I've been born anew, been born again, and live in a world that does not like God, that hates God, yet I have a relationship with him to walk with him and show others his love and his grace. Why? Because God never considered us his enemy. Even when we hated him, even when we didn't understand him, and if we understand God, why would we have enemies knowing what he's done for us? So if I don't have any enemies, here's the thought. Everyone we meet, everyone we meet is someone to be loved, to be served, to be blessed, and to be prayed for. There are no enemies. Because God looks at everything as his creation. And there's a purpose to his creation. For you and me walking with him, we have been born anew. We have received this new heart, this new way of looking at the world and those around us. But I want to paint a broader stroke on how God has rewired our hardware. Take your Bibles one more time. Turn over to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. Israel's being renewed after walking away from God. And we have this moment where God tells Ezekiel these words. Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 26. God says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. This is an Old Testament prophecy about the new covenant that would be established upon Jesus' death and resurrection. When I read verses 26 and 27, it sounds like Jesus talking about being born again, doesn't it? About what happens to us when we accept that gift of salvation. He gives us a new spirit. He gives us a new heart. So our heart, our new heart, because we've been born again, our new heart is like God's heart. It's a heart that is self-giving in its love. It doesn't regard anyone as their enemy. So if no one's my enemy, how does God love this God-hating world? How does he do this? It goes back to Jesus. goes back to John chapter 3, verse 17. Because Jesus came to save the world, not condemn it. That's how everything changes. That's how everything changes. 
A lot of times we read John chapter 3 and we stop at verse 16. Because that's the verse. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We say, we say that verse and we go, Woo! I'm excited because I've asked Jesus to be more my Lord and Savior. I know what's coming. We completely skip verse 17. Because look what 17 says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is something that is very distinctive and new for Nicodemus. Because he hadn't thought about it this way. Because remember what the children of Israel were looking for. They're looking for the Savior to come in on a white horse. Come in on a white horse and get rid of Roman rule. They're looking for a Savior to come in on, and this is the picture I have, this big white horse and he's got a big sword and he's taking names. And the children of Israel are rejoicing because the Romans are running for their lives. But then Nicodemus is thinking, that's what we think is happening. But in the midst of a conversation, Jesus tells Nicodemus that the Son of Man didn't come to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. Talk about having your mind blown. Because Nicodemus is not expecting that. He has never thought for a moment that that's why the Savior is going to actually come to redeem the world. In his mind and in the minds of the other Pharisees, the Pharisees are thinking, man, the Savior's going to come. He's going to condemn everyone. You're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, and you're bad. And Jesus goes, no, that's not how it's going to work. I don't come to condemn. I'm coming to redeem. And it's a shift. And it's a very substantial shift in thinking. God is not going to condemn a world that he has created, a world full of beauty, a world full of wonder. And if God's not going to condemn the world, why would he condemn his creation? Why would he condemn anything or anyone? But he wouldn't because his love is overflowing. It's bursting forth and wants to come and bring us back to him. That's why he sent his son to save us. The word save in the Greek is the word sozo. Sozo, which means to heal, restore, or make new. Now we understand. Now when you and I read verse 17, read verse 17, it's not saving like you're on a boat and you throw out a life preserver and you say, good luck if you catch it. That's not what Jesus is saying in this verse when he says the word that the world might be saved. Jesus' mission was to come and restore, to heal and make us whole. Listen, Jesus doesn't offer some kind of flimsy salvation that's only available when you die and go to heaven. That's not the salvation Jesus has for you. Jesus doesn't say, hey, get your life right, and when you get to heaven, you're going to be okay. No, he says, get your life right now and walk with me now so you can have a relationship not only with me but with others and show others what it means to have a relationship with the Father through the Son. That's the mission. That's why Jesus came. And that's why he, in having this conversation with Nicodemus, 
He says, you got to be born anew. You have to be born again. And here's how it works, Nicodemus. You also know there's a God who loves this God-hating world. But the most important thing, Nicodemus, you need to understand, and the thing you need to remember is that I'm not here to condemn. I'm here to save the world. And that is the reminder here. Jesus came to save us today in this life so to heal, to restore, and make us whole. That's why he came. And listen, that's what the world needs to know. This is the salvation the world needs right now. The world needs to be restored. The world needs to be healed. The world needs to be made whole. Again, that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came to this earth. So here's the question this morning. Have you been made anew? Have you been born again? Have you accepted that gift of salvation that Jesus is sharing with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Have you truly accepted him as your Savior? Have you said yes to him, but have you not walked through the waters of baptism? There's an opportunity for you to do that as well. There are some this morning that may see God as someone who is angry, someone who should be condemning, but we serve a God who loves and saves us. Think about your relationship with the Father, with the Father through the Son. And I go back to the song we sang because it comes from Scripture. Over in John chapter 8, verse 36, it says this, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So this morning, here's the question. We sang that song a little while ago. And man, we sing it to the top of our lungs. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. In my father's house, there's a place for me. Because I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. But here's my question this morning. I don't ask the question to doubt your faith or your relationship. But here's the question. Are you a child of God? Every head bowed and every eye closed. This morning, this morning, are you a child of God or are you like Nicodemus? You know God in your head, but like Nicodemus, you really don't have a relationship with him. You've got a lot of questions and there's nothing wrong with questions. The only problem is if you go to the wrong source with your questions. The one thing I will always appreciate about Nicodemus is he went to the source. He willingly sought out Jesus at night to ask his questions because he wanted to know. The amazing thing about Nicodemus, with every head bowed and every eye closed, is that after this conversation, we don't hear from Nicodemus for a while. As a matter of fact, we don't hear Nicodemus until the Pharisees and Sadducees are trying to come up with a reason to put Jesus on trial. And Nicodemus defends him. And, and somebody asks Nicodemus, well, are you also from Galilee? The only other time we hear from Nicodemus is when he's standing before Pilate with Joseph of Arimathea after Jesus has died on the cross. And Joseph 
of Arimathea and Nicodemus go to Pilate so they can take the body of Jesus and put it and bury it. That's the only times we hear Nicodemus mentioned in Scripture. It's not till that point that Nicodemus is acknowledged and recognized as a child of God, as a disciple of Jesus at that moment in front of Pilate. It took him a while, but he finally got to the point where he had to simply say, Lord, just take me as I am. Just take me as I am. Today, there are some here who are wrestling with salvation because you think you've got to fix yourself, clean yourself, and do other things. You just can't come as you are. Jesus says, come to me, those who are tired, those who are broken, those who are weak, just as you are. Not cleaned up, not made different, but just as you are right now. This morning, there may be some here who have never asked Jesus to be Lord and Savior. It means you've never been born again. You've never been made anew. This morning, there may be some here that, yes, you've accepted that free gift, but you may not have fallen through in believer's baptism. There may be some here this morning, you've done all those things, but you're not walking with him. You're walking ahead of him instead of with him because you've forgotten that it's a relationship because there's a God who loves you enough. His love is bursting forth for you, his creation. There may be some here this morning that God is calling you to be a part of this fellowship. And lastly, there may be some here this morning that God is calling you to serve this church family in some capacity. Whatever it is, in a moment I'm going to pray and we're going to stand and we're going to sing this familiar hymn that says, Come Just As You Are. And that's the, that's the challenge before us this morning, to come just as we are, just as I am. Without one plea. But I come to you acknowledging you as Savior and Lord. Father, this morning as we come to this point of the service, Father, we come to a time of response. A time to let what we've heard this morning overwhelm us and overtake us. And Father, for some it may be simply coming into the altar to pray. For others, it may be asking me to pray with them. And I consider that, Father, an honor to pray with our church family through things they're dealing with. But this morning, there may be some here who have never said yes to you as Savior. There may be some here who have never followed through in believers' baptism. Father, there may be some here this morning that know you but aren't walking with you. Whatever the case is, as we stand and sing in just a little while, Father, speak to the hearts of individuals. Father, speak to their hearts. And let them understand what it means to walk just as I am. And Father, we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Let's all stand.